Good morning, church. A couple thank yous first. Um, number one, thank you, Elizabeth, for announcing all of that. That's a, that's a lot. We, we give a lot of announcements here. It's a lot. Sometimes if you're like me and you have asthma, like you just, you just want to stop and take a breath, okay? But you powered through that like a champion. Thank you to the band. Um, Jeremy, you and your family, um, everyone who's been up on this stage for the past few weeks while Brett's uh, getting some rest, getting, getting a little bit of a break. Um, Man, <laughs> whoo, when you dropped out there and it was just them, like, whoo, man, you know, like, you get some chills and goosebumps, like, a few times in your life, and if you're a guy, it's usually just when you're cold, <laughs> but man, like, this is twice now that that's happened, like, in the last few weeks for me personally, so um, thank you guys, thank you, so, hope you all are doing well today, um, Looking forward to jumping into today's text with you. Um, My name is Gus. Uh, I serve as one of the co-deacons here over men's ministry with Wes Chick. Um, I am the husband to Jesse, father to Caleb, who's back in kids doing who knows what. Um, But uh, he's he's fantastic. She's fantastic. She's my better half. Um, But, you know, Mark is out this week, and last week he kicked off our second Peter series. Um, He asked me to fill in while he's out of town. Uh, Just a heads up, at the start here, I have no pop quiz for you, no master of puppetry skills or experience uh, in my life, um, and no uh, clever hand signals or motions for you to remember, so if that's what you came for, so sorry to disappoint you right off the the jump, okay? Um, Yeah, I hate to disappoint there, but we're going to jump into 2 Peter. Um, In a trial, you have what's known as the closing argument section, and that's the last chance for both sides to kind of recap everything they have stated uh, throughout the course of the trial. The plaintiff side is going to bring up all of the reasons why their side, why their client was right to sue or to bring charges against someone, while the defense generally is going to make an impassioned plea to their client's innocence. Both sides are giving the jury, giving a judge, whoever uh, is going to adjudicate, who is going to uh, render the judgment and the verdict, one final reminder of the evidence in hopes that the ruling will be in their favor. Well, this morning, we are going to be looking at a closing argument of sorts. We will see Peter writing to the churches, knowing full well that he is actually going to die very soon after this. Mark uh, alluded to this a little bit last week, but Peter uh, was soon going to be crucified upside down by the Roman emperor, Nero. Think of this as Peter's last will and testament to the churches, the local church that he's writing to specifically in that time frame, the global church throughout the world at that time as his letter was going to be passed. And here we are 2,000 years later, the universal church reading that same message. As we dive in today, I want us to see two big ideas running through this section of Peter's epistle. First, his exhortation to the churches, kind of a a piggyback off of what Mark mentioned and preached last week. And second, his testimony to the churches. He's making a closing argument, and he is going to look at a few things. But before we jump into the letter together, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled to be here today. We are humbled that you would call us into your kingdom. I know that there is likely 
someone or several people in this room this morning that do not know you. They've heard about Jesus. Maybe they've read about Jesus, but they've never met Jesus. I pray they do today. Holy Spirit, speak through me. Speak to your people here. Give them exactly what they need. Let it not be me. Let it be all of you. And I ask this for your glory. Amen. All right, so as we jump in, first thing, Peter's exhortation to the churches. Second uh, Peter, excuse me, chapter 1, starting in verse 12. Let's, let's dive in. Here's Peter writing to the church. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. That therefore that Peter uses is actually, it's there for a reason. Uh, if you're a clever Southern Baptist person like me growing up, you always heard, you need to find out what that therefore is therefore. Um, so let's find out what that therefore is therefore. What Peter is doing here is he's actually going back, and remember Mark last week preached on the first 11 verses of this, of, of this chapter, but what Peter is doing is connecting verses 3 through 11, those virtues, those qualities, those traits, and he's connecting verses 12, and 15, 12 through 15 together. All right. Peter spent those first verses exhorting believers to make their calling and election sure. And he also spent that time encouraging them that their striving after Christ's kingdom will not be in vain. If you are pursuing Jesus, it is for your benefit. Now he's telling them that he's going to spend the remainder of his earthly life reminding them of these things. And we need these reminders, do we not? every day, every week, every single opportunity that we have available. You know, it's funny, I have often heard uh, God's people described as sheep. That's, that's an image that's used most often in scripture. And I've often heard sheep described as dumb animals. Spending summers on a farm, I can tell you, they're not actually dumb at all. They're very smart, they have really good memories. So why then would the Bible use sheep as an image for followers of Jesus? Well, number one, we have a shepherd. That's good news, because we need a shepherd. But from my experience, sheep are stubborn. They want to do what they want to do despite the very best efforts of their shepherds. Anyone relate to that this morning? Maybe that's why the Bible uses that image so frequently. It's not that the Bible's trying to be mean and rude to us. It's simply a mirror that's pointing out things in and about us that we may otherwise try to neglect or ignore apart from the others spurring us on to good works. Uh, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 reminds us of that. But notice in verse 12 what Peter says about the people he's writing to. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth you have. These aren't brand new believers, and they're certainly not unbelievers. He is commending these people for their spiritual maturity. You know the truth. You've been established in it. You're rooted in it. 
And yet he's still making it a priority to remind them of these things, which is him doing his part to ensure that they'll remain effective and fruitful disciples. I think of Dave Bachman right here uh, in the Navigator's ministry. You're in college, a lot of you, and you got freedom, you have independence for the first time. You're on campus and you can do whatever you want, but you have people like Dave, you have people like Destiny and others who are pouring into you, telling you, do not forget. I've had a deep respect for John Piper for quite a long time. He's a little man and he just like talks with his hands a lot. But he's so passionate. And as I was studying for this, I I found a sermon that he preached on this text from way back in 1982. And I love how he put this to his family at Bethlehem Baptist Church. Here's what he said. This means that even we who know the truth and are established in it need repeated reminders of its greatness, lest we fall asleep or forget what Peter said way back in verse 9. We must get out of our heads the notion that our eternal security is merely mechanical or automatic. God is faithful and will preserve his children from stumbling. See 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. See Romans 8, 29 and following. But the way he does this is personal and living and dynamic and involves real interaction between the saints and Christ. God uses reminders to rouse us from the slumbers of indifference. Maybe you're here this morning and you are kind of apathetic. You're kind of indifferent about Jesus. Let me me just calmly encourage you. You're not here by accident this morning. He goes on. We prove the genuineness of our salvation by availing ourselves to these reminders and being stirred up to add to our faith virtue and knowledge and self-control and godliness and brotherly affection and love those virtues, those traits, those characteristics that Mark preached on last week. Peter regards these believers who are established in the truth as people in great need of rousing reminders. And then here's here's the point that he just kind of tacks it all in. If we as believers need a single day a year to arouse and awaken us to the tremendous value of our mothers, of our fathers, of our siblings, of anyone special in our lives whom we have seen, it is not surprising that we need weekly and even daily reminders that the promises of God are infinitely more valuable than even the dearest relation on earth. What Peter is saying here is that you and I need each other. And he is going to do everything he can to keep doing this. He's going to keep pointing you to Jesus. I'm also reminded of Paul's words to the church at Philippi. Starting in verse 21 of chapter 1 of Philippians, he says this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith. 
so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul, writing from prison, knowing that he is probably soon facing death from Nero as well. What is he saying? If I live, you get Jesus because I'm going to do every single thing I can to point him to you. And if I die, I get Jesus because I'll be with him. It is a no-lose situation for Paul. And oh, does he want to see Jesus. But he is convinced that God sees it necessary to keep him on earth for a while longer for their progress, for the believers in Philippi, not just for his own. He's going to keep writing and reminding them of Jesus at every chance. And in Peter's letter, he's essentially doing the exact same thing. While I'm alive, I'm going to remind you. I'm going to point you to Jesus. And I'm writing this letter so that when I'm gone, you're going to have these words available to recall at any time. And I'll say it again. Here we are in the year of our Lord, 2022. And we're reading Peter's letter that he wrote way back when. That's something to praise God for. So Peter is exhorting, he's encouraging, he's spurring believers on to be effective and fruitful disciples of Christ with the time he has left. So Peter's telling them, I want, to, I want to push you to follow Jesus, but he also wants to know how he can do that. I was grabbing lunch with a brother in the faith about a month ago, and he was telling me about how uh, throughout all the many years of he and his wife being involved in small group ministry, that he and his wife both kept trying to nudge the groups of people they were with to be honest and open about the, the, the real struggles they had, the discouragements, the doubts, the sins. And he said, you know, oftentimes, you know, when we get to, like, taking prayer requests, it's, you know, my grandmother, like, she's got, she's going to have hip replacement surgery, and, like, we're just kind of you know, nervous for her, like, you know, like, that's, you know, that's, that's really what I got this week. Yeah. And he, he said, I'm sure your grandmother is a wonderful person, and we certainly want to pray and ask God to heal her in her hip replacement. But he said, but the thing that I want to know deepest and most fully is, where are you? What are the sin struggles you have? What are the deepest and darkest parts of your doubts with Jesus that, that I can pray for you about, that I can know about, so that I can come alongside of you as a brother in Christ, as a sister in Christ, and encourage you and remind you of Jesus? Maybe that's something for our city groups to consider as we kick things off. My good friend, Stephen Castello, who, if you're watching this later, Stephen, I'll see you in a few days. He's a pastor up in Boston. Boston, place where so much religion started and now it's so, so dark. But he was my pastor in Birmingham and whenever he would grab coffee with people or he would have people into his home uh, and he and his wife would be, would be chatting with people and they would confess like deep sins or they would confess struggles. He always used to ask them the same question. How are you not believing the gospel of Jesus Christ in this? 
How are you not believing Christ in struggling with an addiction to pornography or alcohol? How are you struggling in controlling your temper, your anger? How are you not believing the gospel of Jesus in this? See, at its core, our sins are a failure to acknowledge the goodness, greatness, and glory of God by exchanging the good gifts that Jesus has given us with whatever we see as more worthy or valuable of our time and effort. And Peter and Paul, throughout their letters, they are fighting for us to not do that. So Peter, here at the start, these first few verses, he's simply saying, hey, I don't have a whole lot of time left, but in the time that I do have left, we're going to talk about Jesus. That's my priority. That's my mission. Church, that's our priority. That's our mission. But Peter doesn't stop there. He's going to give them a couple of more pieces of evidence to try to connect some of this more uh, tangibly. So he gives them this exhortation, and then Peter goes on, and he has two pieces of testimony for the churches. All right? The first piece of testimony he has is his eyewitness testimony of the transfiguration, an event you guys are like, what? Or maybe you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that. Cool. We're going to talk about it. All right. Verse 16. Here's what Peter says. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice, voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter now changes his phrasing here from an I, and I'm going to remind you, to a we. We were eyewitnesses. We're reminding you. It seems that Peter is defending not only himself here, but also the other disciples who followed Jesus. He starts by saying that we didn't follow cleverly devised myths or stories when we made known to you the power and coming of Jesus. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 is going to get into this a little bit more. But here's what it says, uh, just to kind of give you an idea. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, which is what they do, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So Peter is starting to defend the church against those teachers that he's going to write about shortly, who had been dismissing the truth of Christ's return by attributing the apostles' teaching to fables or myths. The gospel writers were just a bunch of weirdos who made some stuff up, these false teachers would say. But the problem is they weren't outside the church. Remember, 1 Peter was about faithful living in a foreign world. 2 Peter is holy living in a hypocritical world. It's about the people who've come into the church and are spreading this. Their claims of opposition seem to have been rooted in the idea that because Christ hadn't come back yet, he must be a myth. Their, their skepticism was also likely tied to an immoral lifestyle. If there's no prospect of a future judgment with Christ's second coming, you don't have to worry much about living a righteous life. It doesn't matter. So what does Peter do? He goes back and he looks at the eyewitness facts. And they're not just any facts, they're his own. 
In verse 16, Peter uses a few words that are very important for us to take note of. The first word here, as you can see kind of bolded here, is the word power. We, uh, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Meaning Peter recognized that Jesus had come in a spectacular way. He didn't just kind of show up. The fact that the God of the universe would send God the Son in the form of a baby, that's pretty remarkable. And he grew up, and he lived a perfect, sinless life. You can't do that in your own strength as a human, can you? No, but he was God. This was no ordinary story, and Jesus was certainly no meaningless character within that story. This is the creator stepping into his creation. And the second word Peter uses here that's helpful for us is that word coming. Made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not actually talking about uh, the first coming of Christ. The Greek word used here, and I'm looking at you, Levi, because I know you like Greek words, so here you go. The Greek word that's used here is the word parousia, which is used 18 times throughout the New Testament, and not one single time is used to refer to the first coming of Christ when he came as the baby. It's always used in reference to the second coming, when he's coming back on the white horse, when he's coming back in power. It's used in chapter 3, verse 4. It's used later in verse 12, and both refer to the second coming of Christ. And Peter even states that they had made known to the churches about the power and coming of Christ. So the second coming of Christ here is essential. It's not an add-on. It's not kind of like, oh, if we get around to that, eh, maybe. The second coming of Christ is just as important to the entire gospel as creation, as fall, and as redemption and resurrection was. And that should give us some pause. See, I think many within churches pray a prayer. They walk an aisle. They get baptized, dunked, or sprinkled, depending on your tradition. And then they go about their life as if all of that has no prominent place in their life. It's an heirloom they put on a shelf to collect. Maybe, you know, collect some dust, take it off. I've got an Auburn football that was signed from the, the 2010 team. It has Cam Newton's autograph on it. It's got that. Here's the thing. It's not that special, guys. It's not worth very much money. It's just on a shelf taking up space. If I, if, I didn't, if I didn't think any more of it, I'd just put it down and let my son play with it because he just wants it. It's not that significant to me. But maybe that's how we treat our faith or our perceived faith. We, we got it, and then we're going to put it on the shelf so people come in, they kind of see it. We only take it down maybe a few times a year when we show up at a worship gathering on a holiday. If Christ's perfect, sinless life, his death, his burial, and resurrection are all vital parts of the gospel we proclaim, then his second coming must surely matter as well. If he is coming back, and Christians believe he will based off of his word, then the judgment that's written about in Revelation and that Peter is warning about here, they matter. His second coming is just as important as his first coming. So power coming, or parousia, Levi. And the third word here that he's going to use is the word majesty, which he uses at the tail end of verse 16 to point out that we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Well, what is he saying here? He is actually pointing back to when he, James and John, 
went up on the mountain with Jesus to pray. So you can see that, uh, the, the story of the transfiguration in Matthew 17. You can see that in Mark 9 and Luke 9 as well. And as Jesus is praying up on the mountain, his face becomes transfigured. Matthew's gospel tells us that his face shone like the sun, bright white, while Mark and Luke both refer to his clothing becoming dazzling or intensely white, with Mark even saying that it was so intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. This is an extraordinary scene and moment. Something remarkable is happening. They are not just up there hanging out with Jesus. They're catching a glimpse of something. And it goes on. The story goes on in, in all three accounts to describe the Peter, the Peter, James, and John seeing Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus and talking with him. What's the significance of that? Well, I like how David Platt helps explain this. He says, as the one God used to reveal his law, Moses had reflected divine glory. He reflected the divine glory of God. He literally beheld God, albeit in a veiled depiction, since according to Exodus 33, 20, no one can see God and live. Elijah, the person on the other side of Jesus on the mountain, played a different role. While Moses had reflected divine glory, Elijah had proclaimed divine glory. Uh, if you are familiar with his confrontation of Baal in 1 Kings 19, that's probably the clearest example. So Moses had been given the law by God. Excuse me. Moses had been given the law by God. Elijah had proclaimed the glory of God over Baal and these other false gods that God's people were actually worshiping. And um, when, he when he proclaimed God's glory, God rained fire down from heaven. So God is like, listen to him. He's telling you the truth. Now, I think Peter here is trying to show honor and respect. It's like, when am I going to get Jesus and Moses and Elijah in a room together or up on a mountain together? When am I going to do that, right? I think he's trying to be respectful and show honor. And he tells Jesus in, those, in the story of the transfiguration, he wants to build three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke all go on to say in their story, they, their stories are, are straight here. That as Peter was saying this, this cloud overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud. At that point, I'm probably a little terrified. But that voice said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And in verse 17 of this chapter of his letter, Peter, going back to 2 Peter, describes this as the voice that was born to him by the majestic glory that majestic glory name simply means a name for God the Father that emphasizes the power of his presence. His presence was overwhelming for them. And here's Platt again. As the fulfillment of the law and prophets, Jesus now reveals divine glory. Jesus was not merely reflecting or proclaiming divine glory. Jesus was the revelation of divine glory. And to put it another way, Jesus doesn't simply mirror or imitate the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. Peter missed the mark, Platt tells us. He was putting Moses and Elijah on par with Jesus. God essentially told Peter, be quiet, for Jesus alone is the one who is worthy of worship. Up on that mountain, Peter caught a glimpse of the glory of God, and it forever changed him. 
This eyewitness testimony of Peter's is serving in his letter as an example of how to fix our heads and our hearts on Jesus. He is saying, remember the glory of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ, nowhere else. He came, he lived, he died, and he rose and keep on hoping until the day he comes back, whenever that may be, even if you're not around to see it happen. The first thing is the transfiguration. The testimony of that is the first evidence that Peter gives. The second is the testimony of the other prophets. Verses 19 through 21. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention until, uh, or sorry, do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is saying here that the prophetic word of God, the prophets who foretold about Jesus and his first coming, the prophets who foretold about Jesus' second coming, is more fully confirmed, which only makes sense given that Jesus isn't a fairy tale or a myth, but is a real human figure in history. And you can go and read atheists who, uh, even in that time period, will acknowledge, oh yeah, Jesus, he lived, he died, he rose. Can't explain it, but it happened. And Peter is also saying that this should be an encouragement for us to pay attention, keep your mind, keep your heart vigilant as a lamp shining in a dark place. The gospel is this light that is in this dark place that we call our world, right? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And when he's saying the day dawns and he's saying the morning star, those are, those are actually references that he's alluding to the day of final judgment and salvation for God's people. He is, again, pointing to the second coming of Christ. The rises in your hearts part, it's pointing us to the truth that his second coming and his presence will purify the hearts of his people forever. Peter is also reminding his readers throughout all of this in verses 20 and 21 that none of this was by the will of man or their own interpretation. But it was prophets who were speaking from God by the guidance and direction of the Holy Spirit. Even that was God working through them for the benefit of the universal church throughout history. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Nahum, Jonah, all of these people, they didn't see Christ revealed on earth while they were alive. And yet they were faithful to proclaim it. They were faithful to write what they were instructed. Ultimately, Peter is telling us this morning that we need a complete picture of the gospel story to fully grasp it. We need to remember and look back to the prophets, to the transfiguration, to the past, to everything that has been foretold. But we also need to look ahead as well. We need to look ahead to when he comes back the final judgment. If we only focus on one, we miss the beauty, the goodness, the truth of the other. And an incomplete gospel is no gospel at all. So what can we take away from this? Well, a few things. Number one, Peter made it a priority to remind others about Jesus and we should do the same. 
While 1 Peter was all about how to live in the world, 2 Peter, as we are going to continue to see, is about how we take care of each other within these walls, albeit pipe and drape walls. These should be places where we make much of Jesus with one another, doing everything we can to point each person that walks in here to Jesus in hopes of them beginning or strengthening a relationship with Jesus Christ. Consider this. Peter wrote this letter in the 60s. Two digits. Not, not 1960s, not 1860s. And he wrote it as a warning to churches to guard the gospel that had been entrusted to them. And churches have been working through this letter for two millennia to encourage their members to hold fast to Jesus. I would like to think that Peter would be encouraged that we're still looking to it for wisdom this morning. All of scripture number two is ultimately about Jesus. Our aim should be to know the entire word of God, not just the parts that are convenient, not just the parts we really like. Leviticus actually points us to Jesus just as much as the gospel of Luke does. It's difficult. There's a lot of blood in it but it's beneficial. The prophets, they proclaim his glory just as much as Paul and Luke and all the other epistle writers do. Hmm. I'll never forget being at a student conference a few years ago uh, where David Platt was one of the speakers. I referenced him today, but this was like right after he had become a pastor in Birmingham uh, where I was, and I was serving in a church there. Most folks didn't know who he was. He was brand new to that church, and he just kind of had been connected very last minute to the conference. So, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, okay, well, you're this guy. You get there, and you listen to him preach. You know, cool. In the middle of his message, he literally closes his Bible. He set it down on the shelf below the podium, and he asked the entire conference to turn their Bibles to Psalm 119. You know, the longest of the Psalms. The one with the entire Hebrew alphabet in it. And he just started quoting it from memory. Now, we thought, okay, he's going to do like five, six verses, you know. Well, he, we thought it was going great when he got to around verse 20, and he didn't stop. He just kept going. Over the course of the next 10 minutes, all 2,500 or so of us in the seats facing him caught a glimpse of a man who loved the word of God. He quoted all 176 verses from memory, included the Hebrew alphabet in the right spot, and had probably many, if not all of us, wishing that we had sackcloth and ashes so we could repent for our lack of desire to get in God's word with that same passion. You don't memorize 176 verses of scripture without making the time and putting in the effort to do so. You don't do that without a desire for it. When our minds immediately go to our phones when we first wake up, and if I'm pointing at you, look, I've got three pointing right back at me because I'm really bad about it. We're telling God what we value in those moments. All of scripture is about Jesus and it points us to him and gives us an opportunity to grow a deeper lasting, longing, loving relationship with him. Number three, how we live today reveals what we believe about Christ's second coming. 
When you walk out of these doors, you're going to go home, you're going to go to the restaurant, maybe go to the ball field, maybe go to the park, who knows? But you're going to interact with people and have opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Not just that he came, but that he's coming back. And yes, you may sound like a weirdo to them. That's okay. If we truly believe that Christ is coming back and will ultimately judge the living and the dead, shouldn't we be the first to be pleading with others to put their faith in Christ? Absolutely. I love how C.S. Lewis puts this. When the whole world is running toward the edge of a cliff, he who runs in the opposite direction seems to have lost his mind. The world kind of looks like me right now. All y'all are coming towards me, and I'm the only one facing you. The whole world is running full speed ahead on their way to hell. They don't know it. Maybe they do. Maybe they're okay with it. But shouldn't we be a people who are saying, no, stop, turn around. This way only leads to death. Christ leads to life. As I call the band back up to the stage, I want to plead with you for just a moment this morning. I grew up Southern Baptist, probably like many of you in this, in this congregation. And we loved singing old hymns. And there's one such hymn that I remember singing, and I was actually talking to my wife this morning. I was like, I don't think I've sung that in like 10 years. And it's the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. It's very simple. But here are the words. Oh, soul, are you wearied and troubled? I'm not going to sing it. Don't worry. Come on. Yeah, give, it a, give it a minute. No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well in the end, just like Jeremy said this morning. Then go to a world that's dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look fully, not partially, not incompletely, not kind of, I don't know. Look full in his wonderful face. And when you do, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. They won't start to make sense anymore in the light of his glory and grace. Peter on the mountain caught a glimpse of God's glory. And I think if you read any of the gospels, you will see that Peter absolutely experienced repeatedly God's grace. This morning, turn your eyes upon Jesus if you haven't. And experience his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I hope somewhere in the midst of all of that, they caught a glimpse of you. I hope that for the first time, someone may have a question about Jesus that they don't know that they can answer away. And they're intrigued to go deeper. They're intrigued to not simply brush it off, ignore it, kind of sit on it until it just dies. 
but that because your Holy Spirit is working in them, that maybe for the first time they're beginning to see what life with Jesus could look like. As we sing these songs uh, today, as we sing this song to close, it's my hope and prayer that, that we would be a people who would look to you, not the things of this world, because it doesn't, it doesn't have lasting value. Only you do. Amen.